This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this lovely Saturday, November 12th, 2022. And we are having some wonderful weather right now, so I hope people are able to get out and enjoy it. As many of you know, this is our 109th consecutive show dealing with the deadly COVID-19 pandemic. It appears from the numbers, and, and the numbers we have to follow here are relatively rough, uh, from the standpoint of positivity and uh, how many people are vaccinated. But what we do know is that the positivity rate for the past week was 7.33%. So it seems like it's holding steady uh, there. It was 763 last week. So at least that's holding steady. It's my hope that more people are getting vaccinated, not only against the COVID-19 virus, but getting the flu vaccination and trying to keep these numbers down when we really get into the heart of respiratory flu-like symptom season. And, and I'm hearing a lot more about that with patients who have to cancel uh, because of flu-like symptoms that, that are not COVID-related, but nevertheless um, having these problems. And it's good to really start thinking. You know, it's changed the way we have to think in terms of what we're going to do in a situation. Funny situation happened to me yesterday. Uh, I uh, was waiting for an elevator. There were several people ahead of me. So I think four or five people got in. And there was another young woman who came after me. And so four or five people got in the elevator. And I decided I was going to wait. Uh, even though I'm wearing a mask, they're wearing a mask. I, I don't feel comfortable being in a closed area with it. And and obviously this other young woman felt the same way. Um, and I just turned and looked at her. I said, things have changed. And she said, they certainly have. So we waited for the next elevator. So it, it's kind of interesting in how our behavior has to change in terms of when we need to wear a mask. It's not never. The answer is not never. But Certainly, there are situations where you can get by without wearing a mask, especially if you're walking outside, um, if you're in a large area and no one is around you and you're not going to have contact with people. I think those are the things you have to think about. So with that, uh, we're hopeful uh, that we're going to get ahead of this uh, to some degree now that we have better and better vaccines out there for everyone. I had an interesting conversation with someone this week who teaches violin. It's something you don't really think about, but um, she gives these Suzuki violin lessons. And I asked her, well, are most of your students children? And oddly enough, she said, actually, more of my students are now older retirees. I either had this on their bucket list or have decided to start learning the violin. 
And I was explaining to her what a great thing that is. And we talk about it on this show, really how to remain healthy, and especially with respect to brain health. Um, That's something that uh, I really want to promote more than anything, more than treating disease. We want to promote brain health in the sense that playing the violin, again, incorporates a physical skill with memory and now interpretation of sound. So playing a musical instrument uh, is so key uh, to us remaining in a good state of brain health. In fact, on Monday, I'll be in Frisco Station, Texas, uh, speaking to a group of professional uh, Western sports athletes. I shouldn't even say professional. It's, It's now gotten to the point where we have collegiate Western sports athletes. Something we're not familiar with here is Um, There are collegiate sports that are Western sports. So there is competitive rodeo among universities in Midwest and uh, and West. So there are competitive scholarship athletes who do this. And I will be speaking about brain health. So it's not just hitting your head, but how to really do the right thing and keep their brains healthy so that if they are professional or plan on going professional or plan on being successful in your sport, like every other athlete, you have to preserve your health as much as you can, especially in a sport like Western sports or like contact sports like boxing or uh, combat sports, where you are a self-employed athlete, right? If you don't perform, you don't get paid. So anyhow, I'm flying out there for one day um, uh, to give that lecture. It's always good because I always get such good uh, feedback from the folks there. You know, this day in medicine, November 12, 1964, Dr. Henry Souter died. He's an interesting physician. He's the, he was the first British surgeon to operate within the human heart. And he did that in 1925 for a patient who had mitral valve stenosis. The mitral valve is the valve in your heart between the left atrium and left ventricle. And uh, he went in and actually operated within the heart. And he was the first British surgeon to do that. The other thing he did was he invented what's called the Souter tube. Now, this is an interesting device. It's basically a metal cage that he would insert into people's esophagus who had cancer of the esophagus. So if you think of the esophagus as basically the passageway for food to get to our stomach, you could imagine that if there is cancer growing within that, the person would starve. So he found a way to put this mesh in and so that that person could still get nutrition. And it was something that was used really, it's not used now, but um, was used really until the ni- in the 1960s, I think until 1969. Uh, so uh, very interesting, and we want to remember Dr. Henry Souter. Uh, I get a lot of questions, and I just like to plop those in here every once in a while. And this is one that comes up pretty often, and that is, and it's been around a long time, and that is the use of cell phones causing brain cancer and people always bring this up because uh, there have been stories about no one has actually demonstrated that to a clear extent Uh, 
there are isolated cases of people who uh, use it. I think it was uh, um, Johnny Cochran. I think that was it. Uh, it was somebody who was on his cell phone all the time, and he developed a brain tumor. So there are these isolated cases. So we don't have good information. But really, to be honest with you, I use the speakerphone a great deal. And I also use earbuds a great deal. Uh, so I feel that I hear better. Now, some people have raised the issue, if you're using earbuds, meaning like AirPods or something that goes in your ear, can that cause brain cancer? And the answer is no. And the reason we know that is, if you listen to our show regularly, you'll know that these earbuds are really a variation or a glorified hearing aid. So a lot of times now when you buy hearing aids, you can adjust them so that you could listen to music on your phone or answer your phone in addition to having them serve as a hearing aid. The technology is exactly the same. And gosh, we have a lot of experience with people using hearing aids for a, a good century, and we have not seen a rise in brain cancer from them. So um, the best answer is that no, we do not have any firm evidence that using a cell phone a great deal will cause cancer, but I would recommend whenever possible, if you're going to have a long conversation and you want to have it in private, use an earbud or an earphone. Uh, if it's a short conversation and you could be alone, use the speakerphone. Try not to use the speakerphone when you're around a lot of people, okay? Uh, nobody really wants to hear your conversation. Uh, and I've seen that uh, recently. You, you'll see people driving with their windows down, you know, to play loud music, and now they're getting a phone call, and, and we all have to listen to it. So uh, with that, uh, I think the earbuds are a good option. They are reasonably priced now. The prices have come down a great deal. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back to talk uh, about a few more topics of interest that people have brought to me. And then I have the great pleasure of introducing our guest in the second half of the program, who will be Dr. Suzelle Oropesa. Dr. Oropesa is, has newly joined the team at Ratchford Eye Center. And she specializes and has a real interest in treating diseases of the retina. We spend a lot of time talking about cataracts because that affects a lot of people and glaucoma. But one of the things we've not talked about very much are retinal diseases. So we're going to chat with her in the second half of our program. So we're going to take a short break and we're going to be back. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, one, I read an article. It was an opinion piece, actually, this week. And, uh, you know, one of the few that did not have a political opinion these days. And this was, um, what should I call my doctor? And I guess I never realized this was a struggle for people. So uh, in this case, uh, the person writing the article wasn't sure if he should address his doctor as doctor or by his or her first name. Uh, he had uh, met his doctor outside the office, uh, but was not close to him or, or her or anything like that. So um, this was kind of an issue and a struggle. And apparently, if it's become an opinion piece, it's a struggle for many people. So I might as well share with you how I see the thing. 
uh, I think, uh, in terms of what to call your doctor, you should address your doctor as doctor. I also think your doctor has an obligation to address you as Mr. or Ms. And I, uh, I believe that so a lot of times doctors don't understand that that familiarity it, it, you know may come about, but when you address your patient, it should be in a more formal situation. So I think that that formality is a good thing, and that should be the case. Now, it's different if it's your neighbor, um, someone who you are very familiar with, um, that you know and are routinely on a first-name basis with. If that's the case, I'm okay with them calling me by my first name. So again, there's this level of familiarity, but there's also a, a mutual side to this. So I always go out of my way. And the other thing I like to do is ask somebody how to pronounce their name. Uh, people don't like their names mispronounced. And I have a fair number of Polish patients, and sometimes uh, I can struggle with that. Uh, so I will ask them and reiterate to them, at least show them the proper respect that you at least tried. In many cases, um, they just say, just call me Kaz or something. So that's a much shorter version of their uh, last name. But there is that level of familiarity. Now, also with children, uh, I think, again, physicians will address them <clears throat> on a first name basis. The other thing is... Attire. So I didn't bring up the idea of attire. I think that we've gotten a lot more casual on both sides uh, of the situation in terms of our attire in the office. So surgeons often wear scrubs, understandable, okay, because these days they're in and out of the OR doing procedures. Uh, and I can say that if I'm doing a, a number of procedures in a day, I'll wear scrubs, again, with a lab coat over it. The... Uh, situation then is if you're not wearing scrubs how should you dress it was always my teaching to wear a shirt and tie I still often wear a shirt and tie uh, but lately uh, many physicians especially in summer and myself included will wear a nice collared shirt um, that may have the collar open and I can tell you that uh, Sometimes the thermostats in our offices are way off, so um, it, it could vary. So, but from the standpoint of patients, I mean, patients will roll in in pajamas, uh, sweats, uh, and for many doctors, I mean, it's okay. I'm not going to not see somebody, but I think, I guess it comes to light when I'm in Haiti. In Haiti, I'm seeing patients who live in kind of destitute conditions, right? There's no running water in their homes, okay? Uh, and I don't even know how they do it, but when they come to see the doctor, standing in line for hours to come see me, and they're always dressed in their Sunday best, and they always wash themselves. They're clean, okay? Um, it's so interesting because you would think, the opposite, but these people take such pride in how they present themselves. So I think in general, uh, as a society, maybe we can 
uh, move things uh, in a different direction. Uh, so I'm glad they brought that up. So, and I think that should be the case. And I teach that to young medical students and residents and try to set an example for them to address your patient as Mr. or Ms. unless they specify otherwise. Uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about was direct oral anticoagulants. Um, there was an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine um, that I thought was interesting. These are the so-called DOACs. And these are the drugs that you take as blood thinners. Probably the most common one in the past has been warfarin or coumadin that people took. And you take that if you have uh, thromboses, uh, venous thromboses, but we see a lot more people taking it in the situation of atrial fibrillation. We talked a few weeks ago about uh, football player J.J. Watt had uh, atrial fibrillation and had cardioversion, which was a procedure where they provided an electric shock to his heart, and that changed his atrial fibrillation to a normal rhythm. In that situation, someone doesn't need a blood thinner or an oral anticoagulant, as we're talking about. If you're constantly in and out of atrial fibrillation or permanently in chronic atrial fibrillation, you need to take a blood thinner. And when you take a blood thinner, right, it often leads you to being uh, excessively thin, your blood, so you will bleed more for other reasons. If you cut yourself, um, if you have something irritate your stomach, you may have excessive bleeding. So they did a study and looked at the variety of these DOACs, uh, those being apixaban, dabigatran, and rivaroxaban. So those are basically Eliquis, Pradaxa, and Xarelto. And it was a large study, and they looked at which have the lowest risk of causing bleeding, specifically GI bleeding. And they found that that was the case with the drug Eliquis. Now, once again, on this show, we look to see if studies are done in a placebo, double-blind, controlled study. This was not such a study. This was an observational study. It looked at a lot of people. So it doesn't mean, oh, my God, i got to get off whatever I'm on. Um, because by the same token, a drug like Xeralto, right, when you take that, it's once a day, and the level will rise fairly quickly, which is a good thing. So there are advantages and disadvantages to all uh, of these medications. All of them are superior to taking Coumadin or Warfarin, as people took in the past. And, you know, there is a lot of inconvenience about taking Warfarin. Now, some people can't take these other drugs, so they have to be on Warfarin. But with Warfarin, you have to check your blood levels periodically. Um, to make sure they're adequate, you have adequately thinned blood or adequate anticoagulation. Uh, you also have to be very careful with your diet um, because any rise in your vitamin K or foods that have a lot of vitamin K will counteract the effect of Coumadin. So uh, from that standpoint, uh, it is uh, important to be familiar with these. And uh, the DOACs are becoming more and more uh, commonly used uh, and uh, with many patients. Uh, I think we have time. I wanted to get uh, another question. Oh, so here's one. 
Um, people always ask me about gluten-free diets. So a lot of people have gone, should I go gluten-free? Well, the only reason you need to go on a gluten-free diet is really if you have celiac disease. Celiac disease is the inability to process um, uh, wheat as we know it and will cause a lot of discomfort and GI symptoms, stomach aches and things such as that. So the gluten in that will cause it. It's, you can develop a resistance to it. Sometimes people who are on antibiotics for a long time uh, will develop a gluten allergy. So again, uh, it's important for those people to skip gluten, gluten diets or foods that are high in gluten. But other than that, there's no proven advantage to going gluten-free in terms of um, you'll have more energy, you'll have fewer heart attacks or anything like that. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, it's, it's inconvenient for the most part. But, you know, if someone in your family has to go on a gluten-free diet, uh, you want to support them. You don't want to sit there um, eating a big thing of pasta when you know they cannot. So, uh, again, there's no harm in doing it. But there's no specific advantage if you don't have a gluten allergy. With that, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back in the second half of our program with my guest, Dr. Suzelle Oropesa. And Dr. Oropesa uh, is a specialist in retinal diseases and treats a lot of people with retinal diseases. Uh, we see that commonly in diabetes, probably diabetic retinopathy. So we're going to chat with her uh, in the second half of our program. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you. If you have questions also uh, during the week or even during the show, if we can get to it, info at alessimd.com is the place where you need to get those over. So info at alessimd.com. And... It gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, my guest today, Dr. Suzel Oropesa. Dr. Oropesa has recently joined uh, the Ratchford Eye Center. And, you know, a lot of times people want to get referrals or people will ask me, you know, uh, what to do or where to go. <clears throat> and I'm going to be very honest with you. I've been a patient uh, at the Ratchford Eye Center since uh, moving to this part of Connecticut. And, you know, as we get older, we need more and more eye care. And I have to say that uh, I've been treated by Dr. Ratchford, um, Dr. Chen in their practice, and it's really a, a wonderful experience. Going to the doctor is never really wonderful, but in this case, uh, it's just uh, a, a great setup. The staff is so nice. They get you in and out, um, so you're not sitting there waiting forever, I have to tell you. So it gives me great pleasure to have Dr. Suzel Oropesa join us today. She recently joined their group. Uh, she trained at Mount Sinai Hospital. She is an ophthalmologist, an MD specializing in eye surgery. And uh, she has an interest in, in treating patients with retinal eye diseases. Welcome to the show, Dr. Oropesa. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk a little bit. Sure. Can you tell everybody a little bit about the retina? What does it do? how important it is for us and our vision. So the retina is, if you think of the eyeball as a sphere, it lines the inner side of the sphere. 
and it is like the film of a camera. So it captures the image that you're looking at it, and it processes it, and it sends it to the brain via the optic nerve. So as you could imagine, if you're trying to take a picture and you don't have film, then you can't process it and you can't see the picture. So the same thing, when you're looking at something, if your retina is not functioning well, then it won't be able to process that image and send it to your brain correctly. So I'm looking at your credentials here. What made you become an ophthalmologist? I got to ask you that. What 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 attracted <laughs> you to eye surgery? Um, you know, you I mean you have phenomenal training, Columbia Medical School, Mount Sinai Hospital. You could have probably gotten into gone into any field of medicine you wanted. What made you choose ophthalmology? Yeah, thank you. So I was um, I was always interested in becoming a surgeon overall, and I was looking for a field that had a little bit of clinic and a little bit of surgery <clears throat> also. So ophthalmology has a good combination of the two. And something that was particularly attractive to ophthalmology was also that I could have continuity of care um, with my patients. Like you mentioned earlier, at the Rashford Eye Center, we really uh, have great connection with our patients, and we like to keep our patients and see them over and over again. So with ophthalmology, it's a field within surgery that you don't do surgery and then never see your patient again. You continue to follow your patients, so you could see someone starting from the age of like 20 until way later in their life, faster cataract surgery or any <clears throat> other diseases that they might have later. So it's a good field. <clears throat> I got to do surgery. I had the clinic experience. And then I also got to build great connections with my patients. So it seemed like the right choice for me. You know, I'm just thinking about it. And I guess one of the things that attracted me to neurology and probably the same for ophthalmology would be uh, the fact that you get to treat a wide range of patients. Uh, you're not treating only women only men, only older people, only younger people. Um, there's that variety in age and, and sex from that standpoint. Um, so I, I think that's, that's a great point. Did you find that? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's great. I love that too, definitely. You just, um, yeah, you get to meet all sorts of people and at any point in their lives, which it makes the day very interesting and it makes your interactions with patients and your ability to help people like really varied. But let's talk about uh, a little bit about diseases that affect the retina. What kind of things are we talking about here? Yeah, so you mentioned one very um, popular one is diabetic. So diabetes um, can cause diabetic retinopathy. So most diabetics, over 80% of diabetics, um, eventually get some level or some degree of diabetic retinopathy. And the reason for that is that in diabetes, your blood vessels uh, stop becoming as strong and they sometimes get leaky. And so oxygen doesn't get um, to the, all the places in the body, especially the retina or the retina is one of the places. So um, I treat a lot of diabetic patients, whether it's just for screening once a year to make sure that they're doing okay, or if it's um, more aggressive treatment, some patients may need injections, and I do that for them, or lasers, and I could do that for them. So diabetes is one of the more common retinal diseases. Another one is macular degeneration, and that one does present more commonly in um, older populations, usually above the age of 60. 
and um, it's they get these little deposits in the center of the retina and can sometimes also have some bleeding. So I also watch them, and if there is bleeding, then we could also inject them and um, treat them accordingly. So those are the two main diseases that um, we see most commonly affect the retina. Um, I was interested in the the fact that you gave, and that is 80% of people with diabetes will develop some level of retinopathy. I'm actually floored. I never thought it was that high. Uh, How does someone know that they have retinopathy? Would the patient know that, or is it something that a physician will notice? Uh, I know, I mean, if I'm looking at someone doing a fundoscopic exam, um, I may see a hemorrhage or something of that nature, but uh, do the patients know that they're developing retinopathy? How will they know that in diabetes specifically? Right, right. So that is, um, you know, that's one of the bad things about diabetes, that a lot of the symptoms of the disease illnesses that it causes, patients cannot notice it, you know. So retinopathy is one of them. By the time patients are actually able to notice retinopathy, let's say they are actually noticing a decrease in their vision, at that point, the retinopathy is already pretty advanced. So at the beginning, patients don't notice it. At the milder stages of diabetic retinopathy, a patient you know, may still have 20-20 vision and see completely fine. And as you said, you look at the fundus as an ophthalmologist or as a neurologist even, and you see a few um, dot blood hemorrhages or a little bit of blood or different um, signs that we know that the patient has diabetic retinopathy. So that's why it's very important um, for patients with diabetes to not only take their insulin or take their medications and control their blood sugar, but get their annual eye exams. You know, every year, make sure you're making an appointment with your ophthalmologist and just getting seen to make sure everything's okay. You know, for it may you may never get diabetic retinopathy, but if you do, you want to catch it early and um, you want to make sure that you're seeing an eye doctor because you're not gonna, you might not notice at the very early stages. I want to stick with diabetes for a little while, uh, and then we'll go on to macular degeneration. But when we're looking at diabetic retinopathy, you mentioned treatment injections. Um, do you still use laser for that? I, I used to use laser treatments for that stuff. Yes, yes, we still use laser treatment, definitely with um, the upcoming injections and how good they are, how well they're tolerated. It's used a little bit less. But there are certain patients that would definitely benefit from laser. And one of the things about laser is that you do it once or twice, and then some patients do really well and don't need treatment again for months or years, whereas injections, you sometimes need to continue to do them every few months, you know. So it's, the laser is a little bit longer lasting. Not all patients are candidates for laser, and there are some um, cons. For example, your peripheral vision is sometimes affected with the laser therapy, but there's also some good use in it. So we do use a little bit of laser still. Okay, now let's get to the injection part because this is something that I'm not familiar with. So do you inject something into the eye and what is it and what does it do for diabetic retinopathy? Yeah, so for diabetic retinopathy, we do inject um, medication into the eye itself. Just uh, as a caveat, I want to like make sure that patients know that it's very scary, especially the first time patients, you know, they're going to put a needle in my eye. It sounds very scary, but we do a lot of numbing. We do a lot of them, and patients really don't feel them. Most of my patients, you know, I finish, and they're like, 
oh my God, did you do it already? I can't believe we're done. So that's, that's good. You know, the upside of if you need to get an injection, I, it shouldn't hurt. It won't hurt, you know. Back to what it does. So it's a molecule that it decreases the motivation, if we were to see it like that, of the blood vessels leaking. So as I said earlier, what happens with diabetic retinopathy is that sometimes your blood vessels start leaking and bleeding. So these medications that we inject into the eye prevent the leakage. So if you've already had leakage, um, it doesn't necessarily help reabsorb it so much as, as it helps prevent continuing the bleed. Okay. Let, let's move on to macular degeneration because, again, uh, the numbers are probably pretty high in terms of how many people. Can, do you have an idea how many people, how many older adults are affected by macular degeneration? I'm not actually sure of the statistics, um, but it is a relatively high number. And more importantly, if you have a family history of macular degeneration, that's when you really should be aware and go into your eye doctor and asking, you know, make sure you check for this because mom or grandma or dad had uh, macular degeneration. Well, often I hear the term dry macular degeneration. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the types of macular degeneration? What's more common? That's correct. It's dry macular degeneration and wet macular degeneration. Dry macular degeneration is more common and usually more benign. Unfortunately, the late stages of dry macular degeneration lead to um, geographic atrophy of the retina, so just an irreversible sort of um, disease of the retina that we don't have great therapy for just yet. Soon we should be getting an injection for that late-stage dry macular degeneration. And basically what it is, it's like these little deposits that um, start growing in your center of your vision and your retina, the center part, and so they don't allow you to see as well. So patients might start to notice that straight lines start to look a little wavy or their, their vision is not as sharp. Again, that's like the more benign earlier stages, and then later they really do lose some of their central vision. Wet macular degeneration also has those deposits in the center area of their vision that might cause them to have um, the wavy lines, et cetera. But the complications with wet macular degeneration is that, once again, there's um, leaky vessels and bleeding into the retina, which really causes... Um, sharp decreases in vision. So you have a patient go from 2040 to say 2200 within a few months just because they bled. Um, so for those patients, we have injections also, and they're very similar, usually the same medications even that we put in diabetics in the sense that they also decrease the motivation to continue to bleed. So they help those patients sometimes um, get back to their baseline vision and most importantly help prevent progression of the wet macular degeneration. So it helps you keep the vision that you have. We're chatting today with Dr. Suzelle Oropesa. Dr. Oropesa is an ophthalmologist with the Ratchford Eye Center. Uh, if you need to make an appointment at the Ratchford Eye Center with Dr. Oropesa or anyone else there, the number is 860-829-8939. Um, I want to get back to the macular degeneration thing. So uh, the, the best way for somebody to know, so first of all, is there a difference in wet and dry macular degeneration with respect to genetics? You mentioned the family history. Is it more with, is the 
genetics of it more with dry macular degeneration or wet? It's with both. And some patients may have wet macular degeneration in one eye and dry macular degeneration in the other eye. So in general, macular degeneration is a um, genetic disease. So you can get it if your family has it, you're more likely to have it. And then whether you get the wet or the dry, it, it really depends. Um, and that's why it's important to get um, frequent eye checkups. How often would you need injections? So you mentioned a little bit with, with diabetes every few months. How often do you usually need it with macular degeneration? It's similar. So sometimes if you have a, a wet macular degeneration patient, we usually start with monthly injections, so every month. But then after a few monthly injections, most people start to um, get good vision and stabilize and their disease really gets in a good place, in a good stable place. So we could start what we call treat and extend. So let's say the first time I see you every month for, let's say, three months, we do three injections. And then after that, I say, next time I'm going to see you every five weeks. And if you do okay at five weeks, I say six weeks and then seven weeks. And then we could extend. Most of my patients are every two to three months. So they end up getting four to six injections a year. So it ends up being a lot more doable than having to go to the eye doctor every month for your injection. And you do these right at the eye center. This isn't something where you need to go to, you know, same-day surgery or a hospital or anything, correct? No, that's correct. Right at the eye center, it's very much you come in, you get your injection, and you go. The great thing about doing it at the Ratchford Eye Center is that, as you said, it's, you know, we're pretty efficient there. So we're able to get our patients in. And now, you know, patients that are coming a few times a year, sometimes even every month, they really don't want to have to wait for hours. So it's really nice that we could get them in and out and just, you know, check their vision, take um, the picture of the back of the eye, make sure that they're doing okay, and then do the injection, and then they're ready to go home. I'm going to correct you. You you guys are very efficient there. I'm pretty efficient. Okay. But <laughs> let me back up a little bit then. Let's talk a little bit something about uh, some of the more rare eye conditions, like retinitis pigmentosa, okay? Um, I did a lot of work as a volunteer at the Fidelco um, Guide Dogs, and we saw so many people with retinitis pigmentosa, and, and you read about it occasionally. Can you talk a little bit about that just for our listeners to have an understanding of what that is when they hear that? Yeah, so it's a genetic um, disease progressive where patients, you know, continue to lose their vision, unfortunately, even from an early age until later in life. And it, it really is tough. It's, as a genetic disease, we really don't have great treatment for it, so we can't do much about it. Recently, we've been doing more studies, and there's gene therapies coming out, and hopefully we could um, start using that for patients. But so far, there's not that much that we that we really can do for these patients. We watch them, we let them know, we help them, we aid them in like, you know, when their disease is a little bit more progressed, then we help them get visual aids for low vision so they could continue to succeed in their activities of daily living. Uh, something often common seen is color blindness, right? And again, that deals yeah. with the retina itself. Are are there things being done for people who are colorblind? It, 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 I've always been fascinated by that because since you're born with it, many people don't even know they're colorblind, right? Right. That's correct. I, I actually don't know that there's that much research into trying to fix colorblindness because 
I guess overall, between all the things that could happen to your eye, colorblindness yeah. is a pretty benign one. And as you said, some people might not even notice that they're colorblind. So I think a, a different uh, part of that is certain retinal conditions like that do have colorblindness do end up leading to more um, vision loss and more disabilitating and then those diseases we're doing more research for and then maybe you never know like as we figure out um, therapy for these other diseases that tend to be more debilitating then we'll figure out that it also helps with common color blindness and help those people but in general it is such a benign thing it's more like a curiosity of the field of ophthalmology. In closing, what can we expect to start hearing in the field of treatment of diseases of the retina? What's coming down the pike? You just mentioned gene therapy, but uh, are there other things that we should be aware of? Yeah, I think gene therapy is huge, um, definitely for these genetic diseases. I think other things is these intravitreal injections that I'm doing, we're constantly hearing about new medications to put in, new medications that may not require um, injections every you know, three, four months. Maybe we only need to do it once a year. Maybe we only need to do it every six months. You know, it's really helpful to have these patients not depend on it so much. And then very interestingly, too, there's um, some robotic surgery coming up. I don't do retinal surgery, but there is um, robotic surgery that's coming, um, that's beginning to start with the retina, which should be really interesting. The, The eye in general, it's like a small organ, as we could imagine and doing surgery in the eye it's always microscopic surgery and the retina is even more microscopic so having um robotic surgery it can i think would really improve some of our outcomes within retina surgery so that's a really cool aspect of ophthalmology that we're hearing some um information on dr arpesa it's great to uh, meet you at least uh, on the radio and i hope to get to meet you in person Um, Thank you for coming to our area and bringing your expertise, and thank you um, for all you do. Uh, We really appreciate it, and thanks for spending time with us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. And if you need to make an appointment with the Ratchford Eye Center, you could reach them at 860-829-8939. We're going to take a short break, then we're going to be back to wrap it up today. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. back on healthy rounds and uh, we have a couple of minutes to uh, wrap up it's been great to have uh, my guest dr oropesa on and uh, to really chat with all of you uh, to some degree please get in touch uh, and you can do that uh, by going to info at alessimd.com also if you, if you miss any of our shows or want to go back it's so easy to get them on the healthy rounds podcast um the folks over at WTIC do a great job of taking today's show and all our shows and cataloging them and kind of boiling them down into a podcast format. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't like these long, long podcasts myself. Uh, we want to get to the point, and I think they do a great job of doing that. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer. Kevin Kors has been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. We have a lot of topics coming up um, that I really want to uh, touch on. I really want to talk a little bit about organ donation since that uh, keeps coming up. You know, we haven't done anything on ALS and Lou Gehrig's disease, and I'm, I'm starting to hear more and more 
about potential treatments and studies being done. There are also a lot of studies being done in this area. I know they're recruiting people in the old Lyme area right now for a vaccine to be used for Lyme disease. So again, uh, things that we'll try to keep in touch with and, and keep up to on this program. Next up on WTIC is going to be Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.